You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. And this week, we'll go north of the border to visit one of our friends from the Canadian military and his experience in the War on Terror. More on that coming up in a moment. Just a few quick announcements. One, continue, continue, continue to write those reviews on Apple Podcasts. We're getting better. Not at 1,000 yet, but we are getting closer, so we need your help. All you got to do is go to Apple Podcasts and leave a short rating. doesn't have to be anything lengthy or anything that's incredibly detailed. Just some thoughts on why you like the podcast and give us five stars as well and help us continue to grow. Apple will start to share this podcast more and more, and we can spread and grow this Hazard Ground community to a much bigger place than it already is. Also, continue to follow us on other social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Speaking of YouTube, this past week, we just recorded our first video episode. Of course, you're still going to get all the audio episodes like you're listening to right now, but coming very soon, we will have video versions of each podcast with our guests on our YouTube channel, and on our website, hazardground.com. Super excited, and we couldn't have done this without our friends from Kill Cliff. We mentioned those guys earlier, a couple of weeks back, but they are helping support this endeavor for us, and so we're certainly grateful for them to be able to do this with them, and we're so excited for you guys to see the latest and newest version of the Hazard Ground. And since I mentioned our website, HazardGround.com, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You go to HazardGround.com, click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab, and you'll get redirected right to Amazon to do all of your normal Amazon shopping. Same thing goes for your smartphone. You'll be redirected to the app, so all your information is saved if you've saved it to Amazon. Easy shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. We donate a percentage of that back to the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. So, Again, the normal announcements, but a lot of new things coming up. Stay tuned. It's going to be a lot of fun and a lot more excitement coming for the Hazard Ground, and we're so happy that you guys are with us. And now on to this week's episode. Joining us this week on the Hazard Ground is a member of the Canadian military. In fact, he's a member of the Canadian Special Forces. He's a retired Master Corporal who has 13-plus years of special operations experience. He's a Tier 1 operator and a sniper. He has multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as all over the globe. And he is also currently the founder of the SFE, also the Special Forces Experience, where he's the Chief Force Architect. It's a company that can give civilians the elite military experience, but they also expound on mental health and post-traumatic stress. He is Jeff Tapati joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Jeff, welcome, man. Thanks for joining me. Uh, Yeah, much gratitude, Mark. Glad to be here. Uh, I think our first member of the Canadian military. So uh, I am excited uh, to go north of the border for once. Uh, it, we have interviewed other folks from uh, different militaries around the world. I know we did British and Australian, but uh, our brothers to the north. Uh, I, it's funny. I did have some experiences with some Canadian military during my first deployment. Um, and just, you know, uh, ex- you know, not nothing as far as combat related, but just uh, crossing paths with them and, and, and chatting it up here and there. So uh, they were definitely in Iraq when I was there. Uh, I know that you went there as well, but uh, before we get too deep into my experience, uh, let's talk about yours and let's go back to the beginning for you. Um, I don't know if it's 
you know, recruiting for the Canadian military is the same way they do it in the American military, but how and why did you end up in the Canadian Army? Oh, you know, it's always a fun question, right? Uh, when you measure the weight of cause and effect to a person's life to get them to where they're going and what pushes uh, usually a warrior-minded person to join the military. Um, I would definitely say my childhood lifestyle starting to mold me towards that, my uh, my eagerness to not be in school, <laughs> uh, my uh, zeal for adventure, you know, that starts shaping someone towards it. And then um, I always... I always, I always had that, that soldier mentality in the back of my head. I, you know, I was very much into mucking around with guns and the outdoors and everything soldier uh, from a young age. And, and as life meandered on and I moved closer and closer towards it, I, like a lot of people, I don't, I think the American military is very good at educating the civilian population that what they do, the Canadian military I've taken kind of anti-propaganda stuff a little too far, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and closed the doors a bit too much where, you know, a lot of Canadian civilians are like, well, what is the military? You know, you go into the recruiting center, but they can only give you so much. You know, it's not uh, out in our psyche as much. It's not in our culture as much. Yeah, so I mean... I was always like, oh, go ahead. No, I, I, it's just, it's, it's weird because the, the first thought in my head when you mentioned that was simply, you know... I don't know what Canadian patriotism is, right? Like, I mean, a lot of the people who fought in the war on terror, many of them signed up because the country was attacked. Canada wasn't attacked. In fact, I can't remember a time when Canada was attacked. I, I, I consider myself somewhat of a history fanatic, but Canada's sort of been relatively peaceful for the better part of, you know, 2,000 years. So, I, I mean, I wonder when you talk about always wanting to be a soldier, like, there were were there Canadian military commercials asking you to be all you can be and join the Canadian Army. Like, you know, like I'm I'm curious, just curious as sort of is there this sense of overwhelming patriotism to serve your country in Canada the way it is in America? And because in America that that concept has become commercialized, right? Like it's it's everywhere now, especially in a post nine eleven world. That whole idea of service is commercialized, and 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 people make money off it and everything else. And I just don't. From from the view of the other side of the fence, the American side, it doesn't seem like it's that way in Canada. Um, I would say, like all things complex, it's changed. Especially, I really hate to use a point in time, but like you know, post nine eleven, uh, when a lot of, especially for North Americans, life changed. Before that, Canada was moving much more towards this you know peacekeeping concept. And with that also came, you know, no, no recruiting videos, nothing out there. You know, it got very quiet. They, they, they actually stopped recruiting and they were diminishing the size and the ranks of the military. And, you know, kind of the 90s is known as the dark ages a bit uh, for the Canadian military. So, no, in that way, it wasn't there. And, and that kind of actually brings me to where I was going because I, I always had this urge to go that way. Um, I, I was actually signing up to go to the American military, in fact. Really? Uh, before, well, while, yeah, while 9-11 happened. So I, I, I had no concept of Canadian Special Forces or really um, there was some limited stuff out there, but there was nothing that you can cling to as your, your goalpost, you know, where you want to move towards. And, uh, yeah, I was signing up to go to the American military. I knew they had Special Forces. I knew they were active in the world, I, you know. So, uh, and then when 9-11 happened, recruitment stopped. Uh, understandably. So what would, what happened is the American military would take people, um, if they got accepted, turn them into American citizens and they joined the military. 
and uh, you know they do their time and they can become Americans. Um, as when 9/11 happened, they stopped that. Again, like I said, understandably, and uh, so that kind of forced me into a, a pause. And I was like, okay, well, I, I want to get over there. I, I, I know um, Taliban and Al Qaeda are an issue, and I want to be part of this solution. And uh, I was forced to, you know, pause and start to think about it. And I was like, okay, what am I going to do? And then a few other family matters popped up. Uh, my, my father had to get uh, a hip replacement, of all things, at a young, young age. He, he, he beat up his body a little too much. So I had to take care of his business for a few years. But by this time, what happened is the Canadian SF went in right away with K-Bar, uh, you know, uh, right, right in 2001. So they were in there. And then the Canadian military actually was in uh, Kandahar. They were part of securing the airfield then, mm-hmm. was the PPCLI. And then the stuff, you know, it started to come out. There was no, you know, the, the news for, what was that, like 14 years was almost nothing but Afghanistan and Iraq and Right. So you're, you're just constantly, oh, okay, now they're doing, oh, hey, we got this. So I applied to go into the Canadian military. It was a few years later now by the time I was in a position to do that. And uh, yeah, you know, signed up, infantry, sent me to airborne school. I think, you know, I, I, you know, the old term, hard charging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yep. uh, you know, get me, get me. I knew at this point that we had an SF and that's where I wanted to go. And uh, the rest is, as they say, is history. So as this whole conflict is getting kicked off, are, are you signing up with the hope of actually going into combat? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, but, like, was it I, something I was... that was talked about on, on your end? Like, I, I know, again, as you mentioned, the Canadian military came to support us, like, right off the jump. But it wasn't in the numbers that we were, you know, going at this thing. You guys were sort of just a... And, and forgive me if I'm wrong on this, but it seemed more of a support function than anything else. You were just kind of extra bodies uh, at the very beginning of this thing, or was there more to it? Well, there was a lot more to it. Um, you know, the SF was there securing targets um, uh, right away, right away when uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, it all kicked off. I can't. I, I apologize. I don't remember all the, the terms and places. You know, it, it adds up. But, uh, you know, on the whale's back, whatever that was called, Wally Cot or whatever, uh, you know, PPCLI was there. It was, it, was, it was go time from the get-go. And fortunately for us, what happened was our prime minister at the time kind of, uh, you know, he was a terrible prime minister. Um, he signed us up to be, to take care of the AO of the Panjway. And the Panjway was, uh, it was full of action you know, the spiritual birthplace of the Taliban right there. Uh, so that just helped us get our, get in the muck a, a lot more. I, I do want to say it's interesting Canadian patriotism because, um, you know, like you said, we weren't attacked directly. Um, obviously being part of North America and beyond part of North America, you know, I would like to think that a lot of the American Canadian ideals are shifted. And when you guys were attacked, there was a lot of Canadians killed in the Twin Towers. Um, yeah. So by extension, our our way of life was attacked. Um, before that, Vietnam, I think there was something like 30,000 Canadians who signed up for Vietnam. In the first Gulf War, there was a, a battalion of Canadians there. We just weren't, we're just not as big, but there was always that involvement. It's always there. It's always like, yeah, yeah, we're there with you. You know what I mean? And um, it's just, for some reason, I think it's probably... I don't want to, I'm not a left or a right guy. I, I don't play the politics game, but in Canada, the left side is very, very left. And in that, 
there's not a lot of like, like I said, military propaganda. There's not a lot of flag waving for it. So a lot of this goes hush hush. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're, we're a smaller population. So our, our donation to NATO and all those kinds of causes is going to be, I'm going to have a smaller footprint. Um, but, you know, it, it was pretty much business from the get go. Um, yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, so as you sign up right after post 9 11, kind of take me through the process for getting into special operations in the Canadian military. We've, we've talked about it a lot. We've talked to several green berets and other people in special operations. Um, so our audience is kind of very familiar or non-military audience is very familiar with how to, how to become a, a special operations individual, but in the Canadian military, I'm not sure any of us know the process. Yeah, it's, um, it's got some similarities, of course, some perennial truths some threads that'll, be similar because uh, as, as the world evolved, you know, we grabbed stuff from the Brits, from you guys, you know, we all did our thing. And so there's going to be some things that are similar. Um, really what happens is a few years in, I think it's two years, someone's interested in going to our special operations force command. You know, there's a few different things in there. There's CSOR, the Canadian Special Operations Regiment. There's CGIRU, which is uh, guys who take care of like biological, chemical, nuclear threats, that kind of stuff. And then there's JTF2, Joint Task Force 2. So you're interested in one of those avenues and you put in all your paperwork, you know, that's going to sound very familiar. Um, One thing that they do there is they put up the psychological screening and it's basically directed data mining, you know, what's your life history? What's all the things you've gone through? What's all, and they'll score it up. And then they'll start filling up the bucket of contenders. Mm-hmm. And then if you make that, whatever route you're going, you move to your selection. Very similar. You know, there's only so many ways to skin that, uh, that cat. Uh, I'll speak to the one that I have firsthand. I, I'm, I'm pretty uh, knowledgeable in selections. I, I, I'm fascinated by them. Um, but I'll talk about like a joint task force two operator moving that way. So you've made it through the first barrier of screening. You got all your thumbs up, all that kind of jazz. Everyone's got your back. Uh, and then we do a one week, um, seven day selection. There's multiple of those run on a smaller scale. It's over about two months, depending on the year. And it's what's it, it, I would call it what's known as a neuropsychological test. And what it is, is you go through and you, um, your behaviors are reverse engineered into cognitive traits. And if you meet the mustard on those cognitive traits, you're asked to join a course, uh, the assaulter course, the special operations assaulter course. That's uh, about 10 months. It's been a few years since I've been in, so they may have been flowed, added a bit, or you know, taken a, a bit off. And then from there, you go on your course. Um, something that uh, we do that's maybe similar, maybe not, I don't know. Uh, is there's constantly shaving of the ice cube. So you have to meet the standards, obviously, but then the bottom is always chopped off as you move through. Um, Whittle down until you have the final group that kind of makes it through. And then once you're done that, you're quote-unquote deployable, you move into your squadron. Um, Once you're in your squadron, you're on a a year probation. But you know, know, I'm sure someone on this podcast has said before, Selection never ends, right? The, the uh, you are always technically on the chopping block. You need to be, right? This is not, right. uh, you know, you got to show up every day. Um, so that's kind of the the Cole's note, the general gist. It our our selection 
is unique in the world in a lot of ways. Um, just in its construct, how it was developed, it was fully developed almost by psychologists. It was also a portion of it was handed over from our emergency response team, which is was from the RCMP, which is similar to your your FBI, um, more of like the cert level, the emergency response side of it. And so in that, there's a it's interesting to see because cops and the military have similarities, but they are different worlds for different things and how some of those through lines uh, embedded themselves. It's pretty interesting how it shows up. I don't have any really great examples uh, to give reference, but um, the flavor of it starts to shape people a little bit differently as they go through. You know, if you look at, if you were hanging out with us in Iraq and you had like a Delta dude and a SAS guy from um, Britain and New Zealand and an Aussie, um, you, you're starting to see very similar characters, right? As you rise up that echelon, um, maybe with a little bit of different mandates. All right. So once all this training is finished for you, how long does it take and, and how quickly do you get to your first deployment? So, I mean, I feel it, bad sort of glossing over a lot of this stuff. I wish I had more of a background for it to understand it better. Uh, it's all good, man. It's all good. Um, you've done your course, the assaulter course, special operations course. That's what I was saying. From that point, you're deployable. Okay. You've gone through all the, the ringers. Now, you haven't moved into your highly specialized training, sniper, breacher, any of that kind of jazz. But, you know, as a, a number one or two in the door, you're ready to go on deployment. I, I, I think it's similar down in the U.S., Mm-hmm. where some of it's a bit of, bit of roulette or roll of the dice, right? You might show up to a battalion or a unit that's getting ready to roll out the door, yep. or you might be on the, the back end of the roto and be waiting. So, it, it, you know, some guys get there and, you know, we're going. And then some guys, it's a little bit longer. You know, within a few months, you're definitely on your first task or op. Uh, no questions asked, though. I, I got a little bit out in front. Uh, what was the hardest part of the training for you as far as – getting a GTF2. Hardest part of the training. I think if I looked at it over the course of time, there was a, there's a reason infanteers and airborne infanteers, uh, specifically airborne infanteers who have combat experience seem to do weather better in the SF realm. I don't know if those stats hold true for you guys, but I, I'd be willing to bet it's, it's pretty bankable. Um, like each step, you know, you get, you get a little bit harder. Your mental resilience goes up, you know, inch by inch, you're building up your body, that, that, that SF machine, if you will. And then once you get there, hardest, oh man. Well, I could tell you, you're, you're right from the American military standpoint. Most of the guys who go to Ranger school become Green Berets. They're, they're all typically infantrymen first, right? I mean, it just, it, it lends to it. It's a lot of those guys will go that that road and then switch to other specialties. There's not many guys who work logistics first for five to six years and go, you know what? I'm going to go be a green beret. Like it, it just, that it, it's happened, but it's just not, doesn't happen all that often. It's that whole iron sharpens iron kind of deal. Um, you know, when you get in a different <laughs> yeah. world and, and, and you're used to doing different things, uh, it's a dramatic neutral drop shift <laughs> to try to, you know, change that and go right into the SF world. Yeah, well, you, you, as much as you try potentially not to be, well, 
people might try. Your product of your environment. Yes. The harder or challenging your environment, but also the mentality, right? Uh, let's, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, someone who wants to go overseas and uh, hunt people is probably not going to be a clerk. Um, so the pace, the demand, uh, the long days, the, the constant psychological overload, um, all, you know, they start to compound. And that's, that's what happens, right? The idea is every day you're, they're stacking on you, right? Stacking, stacking, and you're just like constantly, you know, remaining emotionally stable. You know, are my cognitive traits showing up? The the performance that is demanded, it, it's not it's not small. There's right. a reason it's called special forces. It's not a hey, show up. Everyone's invited. Um, yeah, it's not called common forces be, for a reason. <laughs> common forces, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but a single moment. Let me let me probably like. Our, our CQB, especially our basic CQB, is is a, is a sausage grinder. Like, it is difficult. Um, but on the other end, oh, man, you know, diamonds are made in pressure, not, right. not just hanging out, lounging around, right? Mm-hmm. But probably, probably that, if I, if I look back, yeah, I would say that. Okay, uh, you get to Afghanistan as your first deployment. When do you land there? Where are you going? Kind of what's your mission kind of deal? Yeah, so, it, it, you know, remember we were talking about the roll of the ice? I got to a battalion that had just gotten back, so I was uh, hanging out on the lines and uh, sweeping floors for a while. Uh, we also, we switched from a light infantry battalion to a mechanized battalion, so that took some time. So it wasn't until 2008 that I ended up in Afghanistan and we ended up in the Panjway. Uh, our first kind of area of our AO was Zangabad, um, which mm-hmm. is just below the Argandab river, just North of the Reg desert. Um, and we had, and then we were in and around there. So kind of down South towards Pakistan, a little bit North up to the uh, British AO uh, and in that area. And we, Man, we, we hooked her around. So I, I mentioned that we, we became mechanized, but we ended up walking everywhere because it was safer because of the IED threat. Um, usually they're not planting bombs where everybody's kind of walking. Of course they do it in, 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 you know, in Kandahar. There's places in the city that had it, but in uh, the farmer's fields and stuff. But man, it was it was tiring. Yeah. So Panjway, Afghanistan, and our first area was in bad which was, we, we called it the wild, wild west. It was crazy in a lot of ways. <laughs> you know, yeah, normally the winter months are supposed to kind of cool down. I, I, I don't know where they got their stats from, but uh, this winter was particularly bad. It turned out to be the uh, worst year for losses for the Canadian military um, throughout the whole Afghan campaign for us. Wow. What's operational tempo like for you there? Um, are, are you working in a joint capacity, or is the Canadian military just working by themselves in a particular area of operations? It was mostly it was mostly us, uh, and, but we did. What happened is near the end, uh, the Americans were going to start taking over, so we started doing like root recies for them. We started handing over the uh, uh, the ANA, the Afghan National Army, and the uh, AMP, the police forces, and stuff like that, getting mm-hmm. them used to the AO. So, so we did uh, some uh, patrols and stuff with the American guys. By and large, it was just us and that AO, and it, it 
there was no place that you were really alone in a lot of ways because uh, if we needed medevac, maybe it was a British ELO that did medevac. Maybe it was an American gunship if we needed some fire support or something like that. So it was kind of, it was very much, well, especially, you know, that coalition, the Five Eyes coalition, if you will, mm-hmm. working around there quite a bit. But most of what we did, it was, it was down to a platoon construct and we had, you know, multiple kilometers uh, to uh, that were each our own AO. It, it, was, it was actually, it was a little big in theory <laughs> um, for each platoon. So like a company deploys the four platoons and, you know, each platoon's got their, their area of operation within the area of operation of the battle group. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot of times where it spread thin. As far as tempo goes, every day it was go, go, go. But you know how it is. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. It's not, it's not so taxing, right? You're there to do the job. You're going. It's like, whatever. I'd rather be doing that than sitting around twirling your thumbs. Um, let me ask you, is there any point in time, and you mentioned how many losses the Canadian military had sustained that year that you got there. Uh, at any point in time, is anybody in your unit thinking to themselves, what the hell are we doing here? This is not our fight. Why are we here? They didn't attack us. <laughs> well... So now, uh, in the existential way, Mark, I, I find we have to ask these questions a lot because it's like, well, who are we to dictate any of this stuff? Like, really? You know, the question comes up because I know, I know um, you've probably chatted with people online or offline that were like, well, we were just like fighting the farmers. You know, one day they're doing their farming thing and now they're wanting us gone, right? That comes up quite a bit. I would say, I, I would like to present both sides though. Um, women and children got to go to school. I think there was something sure. like 6,500. By the time we got there, 6,500 new schools. Um, I, you know, I very early on in this, I said I wasn't really a big fan of school, but having the option to go to school is better than having no option to educate yourself. That You know, their dollar, their Afghani went up I think it was like 40 some cents or something like that. But by this time, you know, 2008, I don't know where it's at now, you know, having a more valuable dollar on the dollar on the global market, that's a good thing. Uh, no one's going to argue that having a lower one is a good thing. So all those things, you know, in the balance of justice or right or wrong are, are definitely on one side. Yeah. And look, I, as I, I believe as, like, I'm sorry to cut you off, but when you talk about like, you know, existentialism in a sense, like there's right and wrong, there's good and bad, right? That That's the universe. And so if there is an injustice and boys, America good at this, if there is an injustice, we're going to get involved to stop it from happening. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with as a individual in the Canadian army or Canada as a country saying, look, there are bad dudes out there and, and I'd rather go find them and get them before they come and get us kind of deal. I mean, I think that's all on the table. I was just curious personally, if there was any feelings for you. Yeah, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I um, I really enjoyed it over there. I, I was bred to be a warrior. That's what I was born to do. If yeah. I'm not doing that, I'm bored. I'm apathetic. Uh, that that's what my DNA is. I'm like one of, and this is not like a like a chest beating thing, but I'm one of the most sophisticated things in the universe for doing that job. You know, I'm a problem solving machine along with all the other people that were there. So it was like, hey, that you know. Square fit in the square hole really well there. Um, 
but once you start like backing it up, sometimes you got to be like, oh, ooh, is that collateral damage worth it? I think there was a stat, something like almost um, between two and three kids were bombed uh, as collateral, you know, from IEDs every day, the whole time we were there, even till this day, you know, and it's like, whoa, man, okay, does that make it worth it? You know, like, what is worth it? What's the metric of success on one of these beasts? Uh, is it 20 years from now, the world is more stable? So, okay, yeah, that's a good, metric. you know, like, it's... It, it's a big doozy of a question. Um, what I like to do is I like to just not think of people whose agendas might be pushed forward by me doing that job. Because when I went, I thought I was helping women and children. I thought I was helping stabilize a country. I thought I was helping bring peace to my country. Um, so those, that, you know, that was, I was what, 20 something at that time, you know, mm -hmm. moving on to 40 now, maybe it's a little different. Do I have any regret that I do anything I don't feel is in alignment? No, not one bit. I think Afghanistan was, in a lot of ways, an easier pill to swallow than Iraq because, you know, you had the Taliban, you had the Al-Qaeda, you had um, a very old society, which, I, you know, I think is awesome if that's the way they want to be, but it, it had, like, a lot of abusive tendencies built into it. And uh, you can't stay in the Stone Age when it comes to that kind of stuff. If you want to live in mud huts, that's all good. But you have to evolve how you treat other human beings, right? right? So in that, it was not, it was, and then, you know, kind of, I don't even know if it's an adage yet, but one day it will be. When it comes push to shove and someone's trying to kill you or trying to kill your buddy, it doesn't matter. It just goes out the window. It's, right. Uh, uh, I got to get, I got to get through this. <laughs> you know, this is the real problem right now. I don't have time to complain to my government. Well, I, I think there was one thing you said that that gets underscored in all this, and I think a lot of the American civilian population can't understand the concept of what you said, that like, hey, I was made to be a warrior. I was made, you know, and, and what God put me on this earth for was to be a soldier. And and because the post-9-11 world has given us so much quote, cause, right? Like the, w w everybody who chose to, to, to fight or was sent to war in the post 9-11 world did it because there was a cause. And so it's natural to assume that everybody is just supporting the cause and that there is this sense of patriotism behind it. And that's, and that's valid and it's true, but there is a core group of people and, and full disclosure, I'm not one of them. I, I don't believe God put me on this earth to be a soldier, right? Like I'm really good at it. Like I, I, I've done it for over 20 years. I'm still doing it now and I love it. But it's not – that's not my soul the way you explained it. And, and and there are people in the American military just like you who truly know that was their calling in life. You know, like that's what they, they feel and believe in their heart of hearts they were put on earth to do. And I don't think that should be underscored at all because that is a grand thing and the self-realization of that is amazing, right? I mean – some people will put on this earth to be plumbers. Some people will put on this earth to be parents. Some people will put on this earth, you know, to be millionaires and be great business people. We don't ever discount that because they're doing something else that's not fighting and winning wars, right? But it's a weird concept for people to understand that I was put on this earth to be a warrior. I was put on this earth to fight in combat because that's what God made me to do. I believe that. I, th I think that's, and you said it with such passion, but you quickly glossed over it. So I thought it was it bared repeating that, that that there is a lot of truth to that that we don't give a lot of credence to about people who put on a uniform. Yeah, yeah. That, that, man, I, I agree. 
with God functioning and forming and, you know, having his place on how mankind plays out, it can get skewed once man puts their point on it. That's, I think, something that happens. I would be willing to bet this, though, that all the people who are on the other side with the finger pointing have benefited from all of the actions that have taken place in some way. We are here right now. Nobody can argue that what we did before didn't get us here. You can't argue it. Right. What you can do is learn, evolve, and grow from it. Um, and I would say this, I do appreciate that. Um, but I've long since uh, revectored my warrior spirit into other things uh, and other causes. I think that was definitely, and I'm not trying to negate what you said, a point in time where I had to learn through on my path. Um, and that's how I did feel about it at that moment. I was like, I, I, when I left um, Afghanistan um, in 2009, I remember being on a Chinook chopper sitting in the back, looking out like the ramp was open. And I could literally feel a piece of my soul being left there. You know, I put, I, I, I gave what I could there. And now I'm leaving to go do other things. It's on, my journey's moving this way. And um, yeah, no one, those people that have to fight when it's a righteous fight, you know, everybody's all fine with that. Um, it's very easy to sit back and armchair quarterback the, the, the play and be like, no, that's not right. That's not this. Yes. You know, human awareness and consciousness is at a certain point where we could, but for some reason we don't, we could sit down and recalibrate uh, and come to some conclusion, but the time isn't yet. That's not the world yet. I, I, one day it will be, I don't know when, uh, but there's still real threats out there. I'm not saying that just to make it up. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is, uh, you know. No, absolutely. You mentioned that Iraq was was different, more difficult than Afghanistan. Uh, how and why, and what was what was your mission there? Well, if I might back up, and of course, this is you know the world according to me, according to Jeff, you know others. I I just felt Afghanistan was a, almost all of the world was like, yeah, we have to do something about this. This is like. You know, I, I could sit down and we could chat about like Bin Laden's agenda and, you know, we could probably even be like, yeah, you know, that kind of makes sense. But most people on planet Earth would be like, no, this has to be stopped. You know, the Taliban, the, 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 the rule and laws, yeah, that's not right. You know, uh, they're treating women the way they treat. They deserve more than that. Kids, yeah, they deserve more than that. There's almost no one who would disagree with that. When uh, the coalition went into Iraq, it had a lot more flack, in my opinion. And it was a little more challenging. Yeah, Saddam had to go. You know, the, the whole thing there was a little bit more backwards, but they're two different countries and they're at two different timelines in their, their, their development. And uh, I think that added a little bit of tension to when I say Iraq was more difficult. By the time we got there, um, in uh, I think it was like 2014, it, it was very clear. So, as, so a lot of people probably don't see it this way, but as the war on terror we'll call it because there was many different things right going on mm -hmm. squeezed and boiled down the last standing people they all popped out as isis on the other end and like i don't even know fucking isis liked anyone in isis you know what i mean they were the worst they were they were whether you you know the levant was something that should be brought back or whatever kurds didn't like them the Iraqis didn't like them. The Iranians didn't like them. The coalition, you know, like the West. No, no, there was nothing left. There were just people who were evil, doing evil things and recruiting for evil purposes. 
so in that way, it was like, pfft. and they were, in my opinion, in a lot of ways, a pretty easy enemy because uh, they, they were up against a giant and their their, their cause wasn't good enough. And they, were, they weren't bringing good to that area. And like, you know, you had the Kurds fighting against them, the Iraqis and the Americans. They, they, they were, you know, a dog chasing a car, in my opinion. When you talk about the challenges of Iraq, uh, and you mentioned all of them, um, for your world in the JTF2 sort of uh, mentality, what sort of, uh, I guess, operational combat differences does it create for you? Operational combat differences. I mean, because fighting in the well, mountains is different than fighting in the middle of Iraq, right? They, they, I mean, there are cities there. It's, it's, urban, it's urban terrain. It's urban environment. So I'm just kind of curious how you guys on uh, on the Canadian side operate in that environment. Well, well I, I guess in the gist, I think we operate pretty awesomely. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but, if I do say so myself, both, we're right? pretty awesome. Yeah, I get <laughs> I you. So, um, some people might not remember this when it came to ISIS. Is they actually tried to dig in and fight trench warfare style where you had like two enemy lines. Well, not two enemy lines, but you know they had their lines and then there was... Uh, where we were mostly in Kurdistan, they had their lines and they were literally dug in trenches and, you know, they'd be lobbing AK fire over and we'd be lobbing over <laughs> JDAMs. Um, so in that way, it was kind of, it was, honestly, it was, it was a little bit, I felt bad for them the whole time. I felt like you were throwing your existence away on this cause. It's not even that righteous that you don't need to be using violence to even petition for, you know, you're looking for, a chunk of land, which which I get, you know, sometimes when the, the map's being carved up, people get to, they don't get their land or whatever, but, uh, and so really what I'm saying there is it, it wasn't, uh, it had its challenges, but I felt like the, you know, the allies in this case, we will call them, just had a huge advantage um, once everyone rolled in. When it first happened and like the Kurds were kind of dealing it with it and the Iraqis, um, it was a little bit different. Um, they, they were brutal, you know. Um, I guess I'm kind of like jumping around here without giving you really a good example. Whether it's, you know, mountains, sea, the, the city, uh, the units made to function in all of those. Uh, it doesn't matter. Either one, you're going to get 100% uh, out, of, out of the guys. And uh, both of them are very comfortable in a lot of ways. And when push comes to shove, you deal with a lot of problems in the same way. Some are a little bit more intimate, obviously, you know, when Mosul was being taken back, uh, you got uh, the city that was you know, held hostage. I felt so bad for those people uh, in ruins. And then, uh, you know, if you, if you went south from there, it was kind of a pretty relatively easy campaign, in my opinion. This question sounds ridiculous on the surface because I've, I've run through it in my head and I'm just kind of curious. You, you talked about losing guys. And look, loss in combat is loss in combat. It doesn't matter what country you are, right? I mean, it, it, it's never easy to deal with. Um, you know, obviously in America, it's no man left behind. And, you know, even if it's a if it's a fallen soldier, we go back and we get the body and everything else. And um, I'm just kind of wondering what – is it any different in the Canadian military? Is it treated with the same reverence? Um, do, do you guys feel that same sense of loss? And I, I kind of know the answer, but I just feel like I, I'm not, 
from a complete naivete position, like, you know, it, what's different about it, if anything? Um, you know, I, I don't think there's really any difference. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the human, the human mind deals with loss very similarly, almost everywhere in the world, except the exception of few places that uh, are much more celebration of life as opposed to grief of life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The, the no man left behind. I think I don't even, yeah, man, there, there's circumstances where, you know, you could plead the case, but I think that, that that's definitely a psychological help, right? So like, let's say we're going into combat and you know that I won't leave your body there to be desecrated or whatever. I think that psychologically helps because most soldiers, most, not all, of course, are, they've accepted the concept of death. They've said, okay, I, I can very well die here. And they can accept that. It gets a little trickier to psychologically accept, oh, my body's going to be desecrated and I'm going to be made an example of and mutilated or, you know, things like that. So I, I totally think um, it is a circumstantial thing because I don't think that um, as time went on, you know, the best medicine was winning the firefighter, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, how can you do that? Do you pull back a bit and still win it? Um, fortunately, I never was in a position where I had to get well, anyone that I really want at any time in a position where someone was in danger of being left behind um, versus the weight of, oh, man, I could lose five more people doing this. You know what I mean? Uh, we, were, we were pretty fortunate in that. We, we got into a lot of shit. And never had to face that, but I, I, I think it goes without saying that uh, that becomes the op at that point. Yeah, give me an op that you went on that uh, from the beginning seemed like an uphill battle, uh, and you know the results were unfavorable. Mm. I can give you most of that. So. When we, like I said, when we went to Afghanistan, first went there, we deployed into a combat outpost. Uh, it was us, our platoon, and then there was a, I don't know, a handful, maybe 15 ANA soldiers. And it was kind of divided in half. But we were in, um, <laughs> in this spot where every day you're getting hit. And what happens is a lot of people are like, okay, well, you just push out, you know, right? Okay, yeah. There was the, the, the platoons that were there before us from other companies got hit hard a lot. And something that starts to happen is, you know, your leadership's like, okay, well, you know, they, they start to contract. That's what fear does. It's a contracting sense, right? So you come in and you're not pushing the enemy back. You know, you're not patrolling the zone. You're not expanding your bubble. And we went in um, and we had to start taking that back. So it was like, you know, most nights, most mornings we were getting hit. Uh, and at that point, it seemed pretty daunting because now we're <laughs> in this place, you know, you look out and it's all just like mud huts around you. Everybody hates you because by this time, even, you know, uh, most of the civilians there that had no clue what was really going on were like, oh God, more soldiers, you know. Um, and you're looking and you're like, how do we start to push this into you? I don't know what they look like. I don't know look for them all they know is they keep shooting at us um so that can start to feel a little bit daunting fortunate for us uh, aggressive patrols um sending them the good news when it came 
we've lucked out a few times. And when I say lucked out, um, there at that time, you know, like say you had a good uh, mortar team, not on our side, but on their side. So they were good at lobbing and mortars. When you got that team, that set them back for months because it's not like they have their training facility where they're able to go to the range and bomb mortars and learn how to dial those things in, right? So we eliminated a lot of those, like the, the Corvus rifle teams and stuff like that. And that's what happens there is now you start to be able to push back more because um, fighting up against AKs is a lot easier than fighting up against an indirect weapon. So in that way, it started off, it was uphill. But fortunately for us, we ended up expanding that, retaking AO. Um, there was like maybe 10 kilometers worth of Eastings on a map that kind of got contracted down and we were able to push that back up. But it, it was not easy. Um, I remember many times I, I, I filled a, di a few different roles, um, but I was generally part of a weapons deck, which means we had the heavy weapons, um, carrying like a ton of weight in the grueling heat and you know, day after day after day. And you kind of get like, okay, well, what's going on here? But after time, you start to feel it. You start to feel the, the pressures ease off. You know you're starting to win it back over. The locals start to, oh, yeah, these guys should be here. They're helping us out. I'm not getting, there's not bullets flying over every night now because they've been here and they're pushing um, the Taliban back, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So that first little bit, that was like about, well, the, really, that was the first month I got into theater. And it was the only time I was like, oh boy, this is a big task. <laughs> you know, that crown truth. Absolutely. At the end of the day, though, uh, it, it proved to be more worth it than not worth it, which was great. And we were fortunate. We only had one guy get shot. Uh, and he was lucky. He got... So I don't know what it's called in the U.S. military. I know you guys have them. Uh, they're a machine gun, a 7.62, and they have a wood um, buttstock on them. It's a, I think it's a Belgian-made thing in an FN model. Anyways, he got shot. It went through the buttstock and then into his shoulder. So he was he was pretty lucky, and other than that, we were so so fortunate at, at giving them the good news and keeping our you know heads down in the right place at the right time to to continue to do the job. Was there an operation you went on uh, where you came back and you were like, "Damn, got out of that one lucky, lucky to be alive" kind of deal? Yeah, yeah, many times. I, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't even have to go to to, to an off. Everything we did, we were fortunate to be in the shit if you will but also fortunate that we weren't we were we were i don't know maybe god maybe chance maybe whatever maybe do a job done by the boys on the ground uh, we were very fortunate there was one uh, in that same month me i had a few close calls I, like my, myself personally uh, very few like rule boys i was on um you remember the, uh, the Hesco baskets, like kind yep. of the, yeah. the tan baskets filled with dirt. Yep. We had that and then we had some smaller ones. So we'd go up and we'd call to getting on the wall and that's where we'd fight from depending on what we were doing. I was <laughs> in mine and I, I was just, you know, launching everything I could, you know, fucking bombs and pistols. I just wanted to shoot and do whatever I could, but uh, we're, we're, we're engaged. And I, I don't know where they got it from, but uh, a lot of the Russian ammo they used had, a green tracer in it and i'm shooting i'm shooting i'm shooting i get a, i run out on emergency reload i duck down i'm starting to do my reload and i'm beside a buddy and just as i duck down right where my noodle was green tracer round uh, that's about as close as it got for me 
And I had a few other times where shrapnel, you know, implanted in the wall behind, like very close. I personally felt very fortunate to walk away from it uh, without any damage and a smile on my face. As far as an entire op, I, I, I look back, there's some that I felt were kind of officer agenda uh, ops that weren't really serving anything. And there's a few of those. And when you walk away from those, you kind of always feel like, what were we doing there? Why, what was going on here? Is someone just trying to make a career or something? Like we didn't, we didn't help the local population. We didn't push anyone back. We didn't, you know, like just, there was one that uh, we somewhat, well, someone was killed and a guy beside him lost his leg. So guy sat down on an IED. He, he's dead. The guy beside him loses a leg. But we're one of those ops where, well, what are we doing here? We're, we're, we should be packing up our stuff. We're just about to go home. There's no reason for us to be in this area right now. Uh, that, that was about as close as it got to being like, oh, what are we doing here, you know? What ultimately made you decide to get out of the military? Um, well, I think always a, a great left or right in the uh, road of life is love. And uh, I met my wife <laughs> and her dad <laughs> was a Vietnam vet and her grandfather was one of the original SEAL team members before they were called SEALs in uh, World War II the underwater demolition guy or whatever they were called. Mm -hmm. And she didn't want to do the military lifestyle. And literally on the day I met her, she told me, she was like, I don't want to do the military lifestyle. And uh, she also told me she loved me that day. And so it was like, there's a ton of pressure. (laughs) Anyways, we fell in love. That's probably uh, uh, the most dangerous op you were ever on at that point, right? (laughs) uh, It was about to change my life forever. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, no, and she, yeah, she, she wasn't, I stayed in a bit longer. Uh, I was in the, uh, the SF at this point, but then I transitioned to what we call the soft reserves. So I moved more into what we'll call training capacity. So mm-hmm. I was training, Hey, ho, uh, shooting that kind of stuff for a little bit, just as I kind of built up a transition plan into my new world, my new reality. Uh, but it was a no brainer. I, I love the military. It gave me many good things. It, it gave me many great things, but it was time for the next thing. Well, the next thing for you was the SFE, the Special Forces Experience, uh, a company you co-founded. You're the chief force architect of it. Uh, how does this whole thing come about for you? Uh, and look, on the surface, I'll let you talk more about it. But generally, I mean, s- simply, this is a, a, a sort of, for lack of a better term, a course, like an eight-day course that anybody can take to learn the life of the elite military experience, right? Yeah, so the, the process, the process, uh, depending on where you're from, uh, did evolve from that. That was the first thing that uh, our company, the SFE, the Special Force Experience, developed. It was, it basically came out of necessity in some ways, where, you know, I went to college. I spent four years in college. I took chemical engineering and computer systems engineering. Uh, I got my pilot's license before I joined the month. I had dabbled with a bunch of things. You know, I was a certified plumber, interesting to mention plumber. Um, but now I was 35 and I was like, well, okay, well, I know I want to spend my life with you, but what do I do with all this infantry airborne SF knowledge? And I didn't really want to do any government contracting, but you know, I I didn't want to do any of that. I was like, I'm pretty sure I don't want to move that way. So we started to put our heads together and 
um, we started coming up with the process, which we noticed what we did is we started researching this mostly talking to men. We started noticing that men had this like uh, kind of gap in their reality. Not all men, of course, where, you know, we have all this ancient wearing, all these old tools, uh, this old programming all in our neural networks that we can't really use in the modern world too much. You know, aggression is so shunned upon. Okay. Yeah. It's got its place. Um, you know, that sense of adventure and exploration and strife, striving with others and pushing things to the limit, learning, you know, sharpening your steel, developing who you are. And we started to form this, this, uh, this program, which uh, evolved into four phases. Uh, and the gist is, is people are, they go through a selection and then they go through about six months of training. And in the training, you know, obviously there's been physical training and it built up uh, physiological awareness is more important. And then psychological awareness. So embedded in it is a bunch of personality testing and stuff like that. And the idea is that they're combing through their lives. So they're starting to understand, maybe they already do, but they're really starting to understand who they are and how they want to shape the next portions of their life. And then they go to the eight day experience, which is this action oriented um, psychological test, if you will, where they're under constant observation and everything they go through, they're just being tested. Their cognitive traits are being put up against the wall. Everything they face, they're, they're, they're faced to grow in order to overcome it. It's not just physical challenges, mostly psychological challenges. Um, you know, as simple as something like a communication challenge. The idea is to keep them out of their comfort zone over and over and over. And through that, you know, they learn how to handle stress loads a lot better. And uh, the whole time we're trying to teach them about their minds, their bodies, and uh, helping them vector towards what we'll call life's work or purpose. And then uh, when they're done the eight days, they move into a, we have another program that's part of it. That's 12 weeks long and it has a psychological, a physiological contemplative uh, channel, as well as a sleep and uh, nutrition portion. And for 12 weeks, they get a class on each one. It's all delivered by video and they're part of a group and they talk about it. And the idea is to think of it as more of like an offensive approach. So if I use the term PTSD, when someone develops PTSD, they usually move into a defensive posture. You know, they're given potentially uh, antidepressants or some kind of drug or something like that. They're, they go into therapies where they're trying to do that, where we want to take a much more, which we do, we take both, but as an offensive approach. And we call that post-traumatic growth, where you prep your body, mind, and soul for the challenge. And then you meet the challenge, and then you take the challenge, and then you do something like an after-action review to simplify it. And you incorporate in that into your reality. And when you do that, you grow. Each time you do that, you grow. Whether it's a big challenge, a small challenge, you know, uh, whatever challenge actually is. And then they build up that cycle, and then they take that into their their lives. And um, it really helps. We we for the process, we try to target uh, different kinds of men, but usually men, uh, whether they're young or older, who um, they've already done really well in life. So they're seeking a little bit more adventure. Uh, we are trying to move into those who could use, I'll use like the quote unquote help a bit more. You know, uh, they found themselves drinking drugs, social isolation, things that would, you know, resonate with PTSD, those kinds of things. Uh, even just joy, you know, the, the want to live in life, all those kinds of things. And uh, we're trying to, kickstart some of those programs it's just it's hard to do uh, without donations or government grants you mentioned mental health and ptsd 
it's a huge problem for the American military and one that we're still wading through the muddy waters on and on how we handle it and how we diagnose it and how we treat it and uh, how we still keep people in uniform who have it. Uh, all that's still, you know, very, very uh, tough to navigate. But is it, I assume it's the same for the Canadian military. I mean, do you guys have a, a post-traumatic stress issue? Do you have mental health issues for folks in the military more than you do for the rest of the civilian population in Canada? I would say on average, like if you were to compare the two, yes, it's higher. Probably similar to, if you look at the first responder world, probably similar to the police force. Gotcha. Um, Policing uh, tends to have it higher than fire and paramedic. Um, I could get into why I think that is, but I won't right now. But yes, uh, it certainly is an issue. I think it's a, if I may, I'm going to just in case there's some soldiers or, or vets listening, the thing with the military or first responder world is this. PTSD is a complex beast, but at the end of the day, it's your neuronal, your, your wiring, your brain has been shaped in a way that is um, less than optimal for the modern world. Okay. Right. That can come through TBIs. So literally brain injuries. If you, if you damage your prefrontal cortex, you're not going to be as uh, able to control your impulses as if you have a healthy frontal uh, cortex. If uh, you're constantly in amygdala overload, the same thing will happen. It'll start to shut down that. So there's different ways that it gets uh, brought up. So TBI, you know, in, in through concussive damage, through hitting your head, you know, athletes get it. Uh, it. It's a lot of different places, but the military with the concussive damage, and I'm thinking even rifles can do it, uh, begin one of the issues. Another one is training. So we go through all these drills, right? We're, we're slowly molded into soldiers and we create these drills and we, we create a way of life and a being. And when you move away from that, that's still all programmed in your habit functions in your brain, right? And now you've moved away from it. And those, just the way the nature of the beast of soldiering, I think creates PTS uh, symptoms. Then there's the two more traditional ones. One is kind of like your, your, your shell shock where something awful quote unquote happens and it sends your limbic system into overdrive and you're unable to pull out of it. It stays with you. Most of them jump into a shame cycle and then, you know, it just deteriorates um, through other means. The second one that's similar to that, but it's through anxiety, prolonged stress. So, you know, you're kept in the hopper for a long time. You know, you're always on edge, especially once you go do like a year long tour or something like that. Um, and on that year-long tour, you might you might get some PBI. You might um, you might have a, an incident that you know isn't in your normal routines of thought. So it could it can compounds for soldiers a lot. And then another thing that soldiers do is they drink. And mm-hmm. I'm not here to shun drinking, but alcohol, alcohol, drugs, social isolation. You start to see any of those things; those are definite signs that someone could use a little bit of help. And then, uh, and I'll say this for the vets and stuff listening, they're all similar, but our brains, you know, down in our brainstem, I'll call it impulses. You go up a little bit higher in the brain and, you know, emotions, limbic area, the old mammalian brain, and then our neocortex, which we call thoughts. So if I think of it like thoughts, emotions, and impulses, they all have to be regulated and they all have to be expressed, right? So we have an impulse to eat. Sometimes I need to eat. 
but what do I, you know, I shouldn't eat sugar and garbage, right? Like I need to keep my physiological body going good. Finding out those three things, how to express and regulate impulses, emotions, and thoughts is key as you move out of the military, especially because in the military, I heard you say it, um, they're very good at taking care of soldiers to be soldiers there, right? You don't really have to worry about uh, money, you know, you probably got a house taken care of. Like there's all these things that are taken care of, especially when you go on deployment. Your, mm-hmm. your routines are very taken care of in a lot of way, right? But when you leave, now you got this whole other thing. And what that does is it triggers something, and this is just a theory I have, um, of the unknown. And the unknown in the human mind triggers the same way that any experience that could produce death does. Uh, it's called terror management theory. So what happens now the soldier leaves, okay, I got to figure out what I got to do. That's the unknown, probably drinking a bit. I'm not really uh, communicating properly with people around me. I start to socially isolate. Oh, no, then I get fired from a couple of jobs. And it's just this downward spiral um, that is complicated. I'm a little bit, no, I'm a lot bit upset that this hasn't been taken care of more seriously. Because I, I think it's, it's as simple as maybe a year-long decompression. You know, okay, soldier's leaving. We put him into some kind of decompression to deal with this. We, we already do it after tours. Um, we just need to help them a little bit more. as Because undoing habits from the brain is not easy. Uh, it takes time. And when you're kind of thrown to the wolves, it can develop into to issues. And, and to, to circle back, we're, we're having the same kind of thing. You know, suicide rates are way too high. Unemployment rates um, with that is, is way too high. Their support is way too low. There is things there, but they're kind of a little bit antiquated, in my opinion, and not holistic enough. It's kind of like the old, let's, let's, let's try out these prescriptions and see what happens. And it's much more complex because most soldiers spend years becoming a soldier. It's going to take years to undo being a soldier, unless they can find something that they can really pinpoint and vector their energy towards. It's weird. You just said it takes years to undo being a soldier. And and we never think of it that way, right? Like we never think of it that for all the years yeah. of training that we've put in to become this thing that we want to actually undo that to get our mind right. Um, and it's an interesting concept because a lot of the things that we learned in becoming a soldier, we can use those tools to work through what we are dealing with now. Like I've heard that more than anything else. Use the tools that you've learned over the years in combat and apply them to changing the way you think about your life and PTSD and everything else, right? Like that's sort of the default. And and it's almost counterintuitive to say, well, go and unlearn what you've just done for the past five, seven, 10, 20 years, whatever it is. And that should fix all your problems. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, with this one, uh, I would begin with the issue is, is we'll call it language. So by and large, most of our daily lives, our neurological map of reality is made up of words. You know, we, we navigate the world with words and language. When the soldiers in that position, and I was, I was one of these people, you don't actually have the language. Because I remember, I remember when I was leaving the military, they were, they were asking me, like, I remember even... The, the, it was with the doc and he was like so you're okay and i was like yeah i'm okay I, I had no clue what okay was i had no idea what a normal yeah. city, uh, state of mind was you know and 
I, I didn't have the tools. I didn't even have the language to begin to say, hey, you know, I kind of, you know, I feel this. Oh, I could be easily triggered. Uh, all the symptoms that are like red flags like crazy. So I think giving a, a, a more robust language to the issue, because what we're talking about here, when we start talking about emotions, like the limbic area, you know, the hippocampus and stuff, we're talking about archetypal images. They're not... They didn't, those, that part, those parts of the brain didn't form when language was forming per se. They're much older. So in order to make sense of them, you need a whole new toolbox of language to bring it out. And that language, the reason it's important to talk about, that's that expression. Remember I said about impulses, emotions, and thoughts, to be able to express it, to be able to talk to people so that you can put it out into the world and you get the opinion back. You know, someone's like, no, no, that's not accurate. Or someone's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's accurate. I totally hear what you're feeling. I validate that um, and move on. And um, with that comes the, you know, the state of vulnerability. A lot of soldiers put up a lot of shields to be soldiers. And you, and you have to. In a lot of ways, you have to. Now you got to kind of undo those to come back in. Um, I will say this just for if there's someone listening who is potentially dealing with this kind of thing. I have a counter argument that post-traumatic stress disorder is not necessarily a disease. If you think about, you know, the guy with the thousand yard stare, he sucks at a, you know, a daycare for children, but he's, <laughs> he's, he's the man out in the Vietnam jungle. You know what I mean? Right. Um, it's part of our adaptive tools. The issue is you got to mold to your environment a bit, right? Because that's not our day to day, especially here in the West, you know, uh, uh, we got it pretty damn good, and we don't really need to feel like that either. Yeah, those, those, for anyone feeling that, you you deserve to feel better, you know. And there is a million tools to do it. Uh, just got to find the right people. It's difficult to navigate. Um, nobody's experiencing the same PTSD, right? Like, I mean, that's that's. I, I think that's clear to to understand. I've talked to enough people on this podcast and in general that. It, there, there isn't a cookie cutter case of PTSD as much as you want to try and and make it that way. Um, everybody, as we as you said multiple times, you're a result of your experiences, right? You're a product of your environment. And what is interesting, what makes you know this show so unique, is that we, we've talked to same people from the same battle who've literally been fifty yards away from each other, and they tell you completely different versions of what went on because it's through their eyes. And so, therefore, how they process those experiences and how they are able to, you know, uh, work through them mentally and then either get rid of them or hold on to them is different for everybody. Yeah. And, and it's not just their perception that's been entangled in their, in their brain. It's, you know, where did they come from? What were the tools they had before? What happened during that moment? And then afterwards, how do I make sense of this? Because what happens is anyone who moves into a, a PTS so post-traumatic stress, which kind of by the technical definition is anyone who's feeling that stress after about 30 days, then you move into that. And then if it goes longer, it becomes a stress disorder. Your system is in overwhelm. And what happens there is it shuts down. Remember I mentioned the prefrontal cortex or certain other areas. It can trigger other areas. I don't want to like generalize at all. It's just to give you know, people kind of a thing to hold on to. It stays in overwhelm. And what happens is it's almost like Picture like a signal cycling around around your brainstem, just going over and over. It's trying to make sense of it. And the thing is, is we've got this big giant part of our brain that only knows how to make, that's the neural cortex, that really only makes sense out of things through language in a linear form. That Because we're really good at doing that. We practice it a lot. And uh, 
yeah, those guys, that's what I talk about, that archetypal. How does it show up for you and how does it show up for you? Untangling that. There are, there, you know, now we're starting to get um, a little more open about some experimental stuff, you know, like ayahuasca's or uh, psilocybin, things like that, that really kind of spike your serotonin while you revisit these things. Because that's what happens. Your emotion to the situation gets attached to your thought to the situation and you got to delaminate that. The more you have an emotion, especially a negative emotion attached to thoughts, the more you're going to relive it. That emotion will keep spiking. It just continues that cycle over and over and over. Um, but you're right. There, there is only certain flavors to it. But it, it shows up very differently. Uh, in, in, in definitely, yeah. What do you miss the most about the military? Miss about the military. Most days I, I oh, damn, I do. I, there's a bunch. I, I, I do miss the, the like-minded people, especially in the, uh, the SF realm, that, that constant pursuit of excellence, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the almost irreverent sense of humor, its own built-in mechanisms to defend against these things, these uh, awful experiences. I, I do miss that sometimes. I miss the adventure of it. Like, you get to experience the world and see it in a way that you can't do anywhere else. You literally can't pay. It doesn't matter if you're a billionaire, you know, you can't pay to see it that way. Uh, so I do miss that. Um, the government funded training, you know, <laughs> getting paid to jump out of planes and, and do all that, that, that stuff. I, I miss that. Um, most days I don't miss it. I, I was really fortunate to take a, a, a boatload from it and incorporate it into my life. But, but when I do, it's that. And then it, it's never looking back like, oh, God, I wish I was there. It's always, I'm so glad I was there. And uh, and then moving on to the next thing. Anything about the special operations community that I guess still stays with you or uh, you're still able to apply day to day? Yeah, a lot of things. I, I, I would huge portion of uh, the man I developed over time does come from that. I think a, a big part of it was understanding that we are not like a victim to our genetics of being who we are, that we can constantly shape, mold, and change our future uh, when it comes to attributes, personality, behaviors, things like that. And the almost like joy of the competition of doing that, you know, not just I'm faster, I'm stronger, but I, I, I'm, I'm more capable of handling more things at once. All the cognitive stuff that comes from it, I, I, um, that, that, that's got a very special place in my heart. The, the exposure of, there's a thing in our, in our brains called mirror neurons. And uh, as far as I can tell, they're kind of the monkey see, monkey do neurons. So if I see you do something, my, I automatically start to be able to do that better. So if I see you, let's just say, shoot really faster than I've ever been able to shoot, my body is automatically going to be able to do it better. I might not shoot faster than you, but I'm already going to be shooting faster than I was. And that, that's like, you know, that exposure to greatness. That, that, that's why people want to be around people like that. And when you have everybody like that pursuing that kind of thing, the amount, the speed of shift in the, in the, uh, um, the growth you can have is just unbelievable. I, 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 that's got a very special part of my heart. When you do the special forces experience, 
Um, what's the one thing that you hope that, that people who go to the, the course will take away from it? So, well, really, the SFE, our company, it's, it's kind of, it's real meaning is self-transcendence for everyone. Um, I'm always hoping that people can move a little bit more towards their path, their purpose, you know, that kind of thing that, I don't want to say like fills your soul, but where you're moving in the direction that it feels like, yes, this is the direction I'm supposed to be going. Everything feels synchronistically right for where I'm going. Uh, you know, everyone's got a spiritual uh, a view. Even people who don't have one really do have one, uh, whether it's God's purpose for you or, you know, the meandering river of the Tao. When people move more onto that, uh, that truly fills my You know, special forces in general has become more mainstream now than it ever has before, especially in America. As I said, it's it's sort of almost become commercialized, right? Like we make money off it. We make movies about it now. People write books of it. Um, and, and what used to be under relative, you know, cloak and darkness uh, for a better part of, you know, three or four decades is now out in the world for everybody to see. I don't know if it's that same way in the Canadian military, but um, being, you know, just somebody who's tied into the military world, when you see special operations being so openly put out there, does it bother you? Does it, is it something that you feel is wrong or should be adjusted? Uh, no. One, it gives um, a more likely future to use the tools they've been given. Two, it is the tip of the iceberg, you know, we used to refer to it as the day job and the night job. Uh, the night job being the bottom part of the iceberg. So most people don't, they still don't have any clue what the tier one operators are up to right. when it comes to uh, foreign policy and what's really going on. So, you know, to me, the cat's not out of the bag. Uh, I do hear a lot of people kind of like scratching their head and like, oh, what's he doing? But uh, I have a little saying for that. And that's, uh, you can't see the label when you're in the jar. Um, so all those people who are in that jar and can't see outside of it because they're not outside of it, I, I don't, I don't get upset with them. It's just like, uh, this is the best thing you could possibly have. If you want people going to the military, if you want people to shape who they are, get to the military already more shaped and then potentially move into these upper echelons more swiftly. That's a good thing because, um, that's, that's, slowly becoming the future of the military for now it, it behooves us all if we could go down to you know just operator level units it's not going to happen for a long time but doing like expeditionary style stuff you know really quick really efficient you know that, that's a big money saver that's less uh political footprint and backlash and collateral um so i, I i'm a i'm an advocate for it obviously i would say we have this thing in the canadian military that comes up a lot called the quiet professional and in that you know, we don't really talk about it. We don't um, bring it out because I'm really one of the very few who's who's actually doing this from the Canadian side. And I think it's to our detriment. And I think it's only ignorance that uh, would really oppose that personally. What happens is this. If, I'm going to use the shooting example again. Okay. I start shooting faster. You know, it's and okay, no, it's not a good example, but let's just say it's, it's, it's escalation, right? 
Mm-hmm. When things like this force inside to expand and evolve, it's only for the good. You know, it, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't personally think any of the real secrets of uh, putting people's lives in risk, as far as the soldiers goes, is being put out there. Um, that stuff, opsec stuff, all that kind of jazz. Yeah, keep that, keep that under wraps. But uh, what's being put out there? No, if. if if uh, young teenagers are looking up to these soldiers and becoming better because of it, it's better they do that than absolutely nothing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, I, it's, it, I, I don't know. I think there's good and bad to it, obviously. Um, it, it's not absolute. Uh, I, I can tell you, had I had prior knowledge of a special operations community, it's where I would have went. And I only know that because I was fortunate enough to, to deploy in that environment. Um, and, and had I known that it existed – when I went into the army, I would have chosen a different path. I just didn't know it was available um, because it was. And again, I signed up in a pre nine 11 world, so it wasn't out there for everybody to see. They weren't making movies about it in commercials. And unless you watch a John Wayne movie uh, about green berets, you didn't even know what they were for the most part. So, uh, you know, it's, I I think it is good in the sense that people are more aware of it in the same respect. uh, When you shed light on things uh, to a wide audience, people start to ask questions that sometimes I don't think that, uh, they have the background or experience to ask, uh, and you're forced to answer them because at least in America, we're, yeah. we're, we're all taxpayers of our, of the military salary. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear you. Um, but that's why I like for, for me, I, I mentioned the tip of the iceberg as, as the bottom. And I agree a hundred percent. Um, if it, if it hasn't felt like this, I don't believe in absolutes period and nothing is black and white. And you know, the best you can do is some kind of balance in there. So, yeah, everything, everything's part of the coin, right? And if one side of the coin is good, there's going to be some bad on the other side of the coin. I, it, it's, it's a struggle, right? Because I, I do remember when everything was kept very much under wraps as, as a civilian. What happens then is people speculate. And sometimes speculation without being able to give answers is far more dangerous than knowledge of an answer so it's just one of those things um yeah definitely like you said not black and white well jeff uh, i mean listen it's uh I'm, I'm sort of fascinated about my you know new uh, uh indoctrination into the canadian military in particular the canadian special forces uh, it's a uh, it's always interesting to me to see how other militaries do this stuff I, it, Again, as you mentioned earlier, it's like, you know, we think we're the best at everything, right? Like, that's kind of like America. Um, and, and there may be some truth to that, selfishly, obviously, as an American. But there is also other militaries that do things that are outstanding and phenomenal that we don't do, uh, that we don't do as well. It's just it, everybody sort of, uh, you know, especially in the special operations community, whether it's the British SAS or, uh, as I mentioned, Australia earlier, you guys, I mean... It, the training is similar but different, and I think it all sort of uh, leads to the the simple idea that you need these type of elite level units in combat to do certain things that the masses can't and shouldn't have to do uh, because they are preoccupied with other things. So uh, it's it, it's interesting just to learn about it and, and fascinating, and certainly uh, I think our audience has uh, gotten a kind of crash course in, in uh, the Canadian special operations community. So we, so I thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. It's my pleasure. But that said, I mean, keep up the great work with the special forces, uh, the special forces experience, 
And you guys can check them out on the website, thespecialforcesexperience.com. Uh, get all the information there as well. Uh, and continue uh, in the fight with mental health and, and PTSD and all that, because that may be some of the most important work uh, that you're doing right now more than anything else. I appreciate that, Mark, and I definitely will. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Jeff Tapati, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Have a good day. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.